Glad to know at least one. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. <clears throat> and I, I just want to, before we begin, uh, we'll read the text and then we'll pray. And I want to just lift up two things to pray about. Is that um, one, Mr. Melvin Krill's father passed away a few days ago. And so if you would just pray for the Krill family as they navigate the decisions and uh, the funeral and, and different things. And then I want to bring to your attention, you might have seen these on the back table, these little uh, prayer guides for nations and people groups and things like that. I'll just encourage you to grab one of these on your way out. There's some really great information in here for you as you think about praying for the world. Because here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we exist to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. And we do this, first off, by praying for the nations. And this week I've been praying for the Okina people of Colombia. Just listen to what it says about the Okina people. <clears throat> the Okina live in houses built upon stilts along the riverbanks in the Amazon rainforest in Colombia. This small group of approximately 125 people survived by hunting, fishing, and gathering their own food from the jungle. They send messages to one another through rhythms beat out on their mango tree drums. Their language as well as their culture is becoming extinct as only the elder generation, older generation still speaks Okina. The Okina have a system of leadership in which decisions are made by the village leaders. Uh, this position of leadership is passed on from one generation to the next, along with the traditions and customs of the people. And so one of the prayer things to consider is praying for missionaries who would be willing to learn the language of Okina and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this group of 125 people that are slowly dying off, culture, language, things like that. So let's this morning, let's pray for the Okina people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship and hear your word, God. And Lord, we want to begin by saying thank you for drawing us to yourself, opening up our eyes to see, and sending us on mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. And we pray right now for the Okina people, that, God, you would begin stirring in them, God, by your spirit at work, softening a receptivity, God. We pray that you would send laborers, God, because the harvest is plentiful among the Okina. That, God, you would send missionaries there who learn the language, who know the customs, who know the people, so that they would begin to build relationships and share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we want to see all nations, including people from the Okina, surrounding the throne of the Lamb, worshiping Him, God, at the last day. So I pray, God, begin softening, doing Your work there now. We pray for the, also for the Creel family, God, and the loss of Mr. Melvin's father. Pray that You would comfort the family, give them peace, give them supernatural wisdom that only comes from You, and as they navigate difficult conversations in the days ahead. And Lord, that God, even in the midst of death, you would be worshipped as the God who gives life. God, we thank you for our opportunity we have to study your word today. God, guide us by your spirit, Lord, that we would be transformed by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you've arrived at Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? says this 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water out of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, I've heard these ominous last words many times in my life. And they are, don't say I didn't warn you. Many times before I've done something very stupid, very dumb, the last words from my wife, my mother, people in authority over me were, don't say I didn't warn you, because I did. And maybe many of you have been in a similar situation like that. Uh, I, many times I've told you stories about my sister. She has a mean right hook. And uh, many times I know that my mom said, if you provoke your sister, she's going to punch you in the face. And her last words were, don't say I didn't warn you. Okay? And that's the kind of sentiment that we get here at the beginning of the plague stories is that there's been verbal warnings that have been issued to Pharaoh at this point. Moses and Aaron have given verbal warnings of what's going to happen. They've now done miracles and signs and wonders before him with the staff turning into a snake. And thus far, they were all performed as a warning of the severity of what is to come if Pharaoh continues in his hard-heartedness and his resistance to God. And so... What we learn today is this, the next step has to be taken with Pharaoh. And so we're going to see God's heavy hand on Pharaoh's heavy heart, on heart, hard heart-heartedness. And that ultimately at the end, Pharaoh will not even be able to give the excuse of, nobody warned me, nobody said this, these things would happen. Because Moses and Aaron and, Pharaoh and, and God himself and say to Pharaoh, don't say I didn't warn you. And that's what we'll look at this morning in two points. Is the first point is this, in verses 14 through 21. We will see God's heavy hand 
in these verses. God's heavy hand. Now, when I when you hear the word heavy hand, when I hear the word heavy hand, it really typically has these bad connotations to it, right? Heavy-handed, like overly forceful, forceful, like unfair in a sense. Like that's that's too much, right? And so, how can I even say that God has a heavy hand right here? Well, it's interesting in First Samuel chapter five, verse six. This is talking about against the people of Ashdod. It says this: the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. The heavy hand of the Lord. And here, when, when I say heavy hand, I'm not meaning that God is unfair in what he's doing, that God is unjust in what he's done, or that God has gone too far in what he has done. God has never gone too far. God is never heavy handed in that sense. God is never overly forceful. He is always perfectly just in what he does. And so this is what we'll see here in this first plague and in every plague to follow that. That God is perfectly just and perfectly heavy-handed with Pharaoh here. And that even in this section right here that we're looking at, this section is bracketed by Pharaoh's heavy heart. And so what we're going to learn is this, that in response to Pharaoh's heavy heart, we're going to learn of God's perfect heavy hand of justice here. Just look at this. Look at how it begins in verse 14. It begins the same way that we ended last week, if you were here. Last week we ended with this phrase that Pharaoh hardened, strengthened his heart against God after seeing the staff turned into a snake. That was, Mo that was Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron when they saw these things. And so right where we ended last week is where we begin this week. Same phrase is happening again, except it's telling us about Pharaoh's spiritual condition here look at what what it says in verse 14 then the lord said to moses pharaoh's heart is hardened it's telling us about his spiritual condition right now before we even get into the plagues he's hardening his heart and so now the state in which he is in is a hard heart you are going to be going to a person doing miracles signs wonders acts of great judgment to a person's a person whose heart right now is hardened toward God. This is what he is. He is actively, Pharaoh is actively resisting God. And this is his condition towards God. And so now God is going to up the ante in some sense. It's that now he will begin these plagues and these great acts and signs of wonder that he will do. And this first plague that we're going to talk about today, just, just the first one, is when he turns, what does he turn into blood? The Nile. Is that we're going to learn a couple of things about God. Because he demonstrates for us some things about himself in this first plague. And so you'll see that on your outline here. What I've kind of worded for you is that the first plague shows us these things. First, it shows us that God has universal jurisdiction. He has universal jurisdiction. And you'll see this in the first couple of verses, 15 through 17. You know, whenever you have your, your favorite baseball team or your favorite football team or whatever, you love when they have home field advantage. And football teams and baseball teams and basketball teams, they love when they have home field advantage. You know why? Because the crowds are there, right? Their crowds, their fans are there. They're on their own turf. They're playing on the, the, the field that they play on all the time. They know it, right? And so it gives them some confidence. It gives them some pride. Like, we got our fans behind us. We're on our own field. We feel good about what's about to go down. We have everything. We have home field advantage. 
Well, this is what is happening with Pharaoh, is that God is telling Moses to go to Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile, and that, supposedly what Pharaoh thinks is him having home field advantage. This is Pharaoh's turf. This is his terrain. This is his domain. This is. This is what Pharaoh controls. Pharaoh has home field advantage on the Nile because he owns it. And you might be like, where do you get he owns it from? Well, there's an interesting passage, and you can write this on Ezekiel 29, verse 3 and verse 9, where God is, is talking with Ezekiel to speak to Pharaoh and to Egypt and basically to condemn them, to indict them for what they've done. And one of the things that he pulls out is this, Pharaoh's pride and his arrogance. Listen to what it says. This is God. Exodus 29, verse 3, or Ezekiel 29, verse 3. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. That's what Pharaoh is saying about the Nile. It's mine. I made it. I own it. And so right now, God is instructing Moses and Aaron to go on to Pharaoh's turf, to go on his domain of what he thinks is his terrain to show him it's really not. It's really not his at all. Yahweh is going to meet him, Pharaoh there, on his own turf and beat him. And show him in verse 16, and verse 17, that this is the Lord God of the Hebrews. So that he's going to come to the Nile so that, that Pharaoh can learn in verse 17 that all these things are happening so that he will know that I am the Lord. God is showing Pharaoh that Yahweh has jurisdiction over the Israelites, over the Egyptians, over the Nile, and over Pharaoh. As Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God owns all these things. Even the Nile is God's. And man, this, what Pharaoh's going to learn is just how little power and authority and jurisdiction he really has. And man, isn't that a good message for us to hear today? Is that do you recognize just how little power and jurisdiction you have in this life? You might think, I got everything under control. Everything is at my fingertips. I, I, I can move these pieces here and there. But man, do you realize just how little power you have over your job, over your kids, over your home, over your health? over your reputation, your income. You may think you have control over a lot of things, but like Pharaoh, we need to learn. We don't have control over very much. We don't have that great of jurisdiction because any jurisdiction or possessions that we may have in this life is limited, and it's only given by God. And some of us this morning even need to repent of thinking that we have more jurisdiction than we actually do. 
is that we live as though we have power and that we have it all together and everything is being held according to our plan and that we really do have power and control over how everything operates in our life. And this morning, we may need to repent of that, that we really don't have any control. Is that we all, we even want to present ourselves that way, that we have everything together. We have everything together, right? I have control over everything. That's what we're saying. I, I got it all together, right? But let me just tell you this, church family, you don't come here this morning to church to worship the Lord Jesus Christ because you have it all together. I don't have it all together. You don't have it all together. Jesus, he has it all together and he upholds everything together. Man, this morning, maybe you need to come to the end of yourself and say, I'm a mess. I have really no power to change anything in my life to fix anything, but I do know that this Christ, he upholds all things and holds all things together as the book of Colossians says. This morning you may need to repent and say, God, you have jurisdiction and I really don't have that much. That's the first thing that Pharaoh's going to learn is that God has universal jurisdiction, but the second thing he's going to learn is this, is the extent of God's power. Is that Pharaoh may think, oh, you know what, that staff turned into a snake, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty lame birthday party trick. That's probably cool at a sixth grade, or, you know, sixth grader's birthday party. It's not cool here, right? It's not cool here. But this first plague is on a whole new level, right? It's turning the Nile into blood. And it's really interesting that the thing that, the thing that God turns into a snake, the staff turning into a snake, is now the thing that's going to turn something else into something else, right? The same instrument. And just look at the scope of God's power here of what is told to us in these verses, verses 18 and 19. Is that, look, man, like Egypt right now is like a murder scene, right? There is blood everywhere, right? It's everywhere. Look at what it says. It says it's in their rivers, it's in all their canals, it's in all their ponds, it's in it's all their pools, it's even in the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Look at the extent and scope of God's power. Wherever water could be, blood is there. It has been turned to blood. That's what God can do. That is the extent and scope of his power. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the extent and scope of Jesus' power. Is that in the Gospels, Jesus shows the extent and nature of his power particularly in how he heals people. If you remember that story with the centurion and his servant, the centurion comes in Matthew chapter 8 to Jesus, says you can heal him, and Jesus doesn't even have to go and see him. He didn't even have to go and touch the guy. He says right now immediately he is healed, and he was. Jesus does not even have to go far. From afar, Jesus shows his his power, and his power has no limitations to it, just like God's power. Jesus' power has no limitations to it. And you guess what? For you this morning here who might be an unbeliever, Jesus' power to save has no limitations either. This morning, you might feel like you are far off, that you are unsavable, you are unlovable, you are at so far a distance away from God, there is no way that he could stretch out his hand that far and save you. But guess what? There is no limitations to God's power through Christ Jesus to save you. He can save the most wicked of sinners this morning if you repent and trust in Jesus. And you can do that this morning. 
Jesus' power to save is limitless if you repent and trust in Him. And this is the extent of God's power. But, but not just, listen to this, is that God's power here in the Exodus in this first plague, the extent of it is, is that it is everywhere. He has turned blood, uh, water, water into blood everywhere. But, but not only that, just think about this. He has the power to change the molecular structure of an object, right? He's already done that with the, with the staff turning into a snake. And now, water turning into blood. And look, I don't know if y'all know this about me, but I'm not a molecular biologist. I don't know if any of you are wondering that. I mean, I may have give off that impression, but I'm not. But just consider this, is that he changes the molecular structure of water into wine. And water turned to actual blood. It's not like blood. It doesn't resemble blood. It's not similar to blood. It's blood. And many people may try to deny, even try to justify or try to explain away. Well, it was the way that the sun hit the water at that time of day and made it look like with a red tennis where it resembled blood. Or you know what, there was this algae in the waters of the Nile at that time of year where when the heat hit the algae, it actually turned the water into a red color. No, the water turned to blood. That's it. That's God's miraculous power to do that. Don't deny the miraculous. It's harder to explain if you do that. Don't deny the miraculous. If you question God's power here to turn the Nile into blood, you're going to have real trouble when you keep reading the Bible and you hear of a man who changed the molecular structure of water into wine and who was also raised from the dead. You'll have a big problem there. Don't deny the miraculous. This is what God does. And, and look, and I'm not saying this, that you shouldn't be confused by it, anything like that. Following Jesus is about affirming and believing the miraculous, even though you don't completely understand it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. I can't completely explain it to you. I can't fathom all, all that went into it. But I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe that he healed people. I believe that he healed lepers and changed water into wine. All those things. And so we're seeing the scope of God's power here. Next thing that we'll see in verses 20 through 21 is this. We'll see that God shows the truthfulness of his word. The truthfulness of his word in verses 20 and 21. You know, some of you, uh, uh, you, you make educated guesses on, uh, we won't call it gambling, we'll just make educated guesses on a, on a, a football game or something like that. Look, they're going to win by, uh, by 20 points. Uh, you know, put, put me down for that. 20 points. Now, you might be right. You might be right. They're going to win by 20 points. But most of the time, you don't get all the little details throughout right, right? Nobody's like, well, they're going to. They're going to run this play, they'll score on this play, they won't score on this play, they'll score on this play, they won't score on that play, they'll stop them on that drive, they won't stop them on this drive. Most of the time, people like that don't, I mean, those people don't exist. They usually get the end outcome right, not the means, right? You don't get the pieces along the way, but unlike humanity, this is not the case with God, right? 
just as he said it would happen in verses 16 through 19. It happened exactly that way. He gets, God gets the means and the incorrect. He gets the outcome and the way it gets there correct. So just as it says in these verses, in 16 through 19, of how it's all going to be. He's going to strike the Nile. It's going to turn into blood. The fish in the Nile are going to die. It's going to stink. The Egyptians will grow grow weary. In verses 20 through 21, it happens the exact way he says it will happen. The truthfulness of God's word is that God gets the outcome and the means correct every time. He gets the outcome and the means correct every time. His word is true and can be trusted from the very beginning, in the middle, and the end. Man, do we trust that this morning, church family? Do you trust the truthfulness of God's word? Do you believe that God is purposeful, truthful, and even good in the outcome and in the journey there? Man, that's hard to believe sometimes, right? That you're like, I I know it's going to turn out this way. I know it's going to be good. I just don't know why God's got to do it this way. I know it's gonna. I know it's gonna be this way. I know the kids are gonna turn out fine. But why is it gotta be so hard right now? Or I know my job's gonna be fine in the end. But why is it so difficult right now? I know that I'm gonna get better from the sickness. But why am I having to deal with this right now? Do you understand that God is good and He's sovereign and He's purposeful and He's wise? That He doesn't just ordain the end, but He ordains the means. And it's good. It's good. You might be right now journeying through a very difficult process that you know what the end is. You know what the outcome is. But you are struggling with the way there. Let me tell you this. God has not messed up the means. He is good even in the journey there and has ordained even those means right now. And that God shows the truthfulness of his word. It'll be good from the very beginning to the very end. Next is this, is that God shows the superiority of his power in verse 22. Look at this. He shows that he is superior over Pharaoh in his entourage. You know, look, his, his entourage is able to replicate some of these signs and wonders. At some point, they, will be able, they won't be able to. They were able, they're able to do the staff into a snake. Now they're able to turn water into blood. And, you know, we had a big conversation in our Leftovers Bible study this past Wednesday about the, these magicians and these you know, people doing secret arts and stuff like that. Like, are, are these just tricks? Are these sleight of hand? Are these are they things like that? And let me just say this. Listen, I don't know what all is going on here with these Egyptian magicians and people like that. But I will say this. There seems to be some form of a dark force and influence in these magicians. I don't think this is sleight of hand. I don't think this is just, you know, pull, pull, a, pull a quarter out of your ear kind of trick that there seems to be dark influences throughout the Bible where Satan does influence things that look supernatural. Is that what we're told in, in the letters of Paul and Ephesians particularly is that we don't, we don't battle against what? Flesh and blood. But dark spiritual forces, and I think sometimes that they can be at play even in situations like this. And so these this entourage, they can... They can replicate this, but you know what they can't do? They can't overpower God. They can't outdo God. And they can't even undo what God has done. 
You know what would have been nice, and this has been noted by many authors, you know what would have been nice for the, the, the magicians to have done? To change the blood to water. That would have been nice, right? Rather, they're like, let's put a, let's make it even worse for the Egyptian people. Let's turn more water into blood. Would have been nice to like, you know what we're going to do for y'all people? We're going to turn the blood that God turns uh, into the water into blood. We're going to turn that back into water for y'all so y'all can drink it. That's not what they do. They turn more water into blood. And so the people in verse 18 and verse 24, they grow weary from drinking this water from the Nile. Their Egyptian magicians don't help them because they can't. They can't change it from blood to water because they're not able to. They're inferior to God. And so God is showing his superiority over Pharaoh and his Egyptians, magicians. But he's also showing his power over Egypt's gods. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn over to Numbers 33. Turn over to Numbers 33 with me. And I want you to see is that when God does these plagues, I want you to keep this verse in the back of your mind when we go throughout the plague stories, is that what God is doing is not just showing his superiority over Pharaoh, over the magicians, but he's showing, he's showing his superiority over the gods who Pharaoh trusts and who the Egyptians trust. Is that Yahweh is showing himself as the only true God and the gods that they worship are vain and empty and can't really do anything for them. This is what Numbers 33, 3-4 says. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all of their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. Now listen to this line. On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. Everything that's happening in these plague stories is not just about Pharaoh. It's not just about turning his heart or showing him who God is. It's not just about showing the Egyptians who the Lord is. Yes, it's all those things. But it's about showing the emptiness of Egypt's gods. The people that they trust in. Their idols. It's about God showing that you can't trust in these things. They can't protect you because they're not real. So these plagues are about God showing himself superior over Pharaoh, over the magicians, and over the gods whom they trust. And wouldn't that just be a blow to the stomach to show like, I, I think I described it to the Leftovers Bible study on Wednesday. It's like the Wizard of Oz. And that they travel all this way to get to the Wizard of Oz. And when they pull back the curtain, it's just a man on a microphone who's not really powerful and can't really do much. Sorry if you haven't seen the movie. You've had time. But it's to show, it's to expose the Wizard of Oz to say, this guy is just a it's a guy with a microphone who doesn't have any power or authority. And this is what the plagues are doing. This is why God sends the plagues to say, these are your gods. They can't help you. They can't do anything for you. God is superior 
over all gods. Next one is this. Is that in this play, God is showing the untarnishable nature of his reputation. You remember, like we've already said, the Nile for Pharaoh is the symbol kind of of his power and his authority of what he thinks he controls. It's, it's what he's famous for. He has control of the Nile. Right? And so look what God does to the Nile in verse 18 and following. Is that he strikes the Nile and turns it into blood. The fish die and the Nile stinks. It stinks. God makes the Nile stink by this plague. And it's interesting, this word here for stink can mean two things. It has two connotations. One, it can mean a literal bad smell, which is probably here. It's a literal bad smell. Or it means a bad reputation. If you look at this, flip over to Exodus chapter 5, verse 21. Exodus chapter 5, verse 21 says this. This is the Israelites. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, do you think the people actually literally stink in the sight of Pharaoh? Well, yes, right? But it's about their reputation in front of Pharaoh. And so I think there's something really interesting dynamically going on here with the word stink. I've never done like a biblical theology of stink before in the Bible. But there's something there. You should, you should explore it. Um, the word stink is literally the Nile stank. But it also is that God struck the thing that Pharaoh put so much pride in. He put so much confidence in. And he made it stink. So the thing that he put so much confidence in to make it stink is also to give Pharaoh a stench. To ruin his reputation. And that's what God is doing here. Is God makes the Nile stink to show that God can ruin Pharaoh's reputation. He can embarrass him. Pharaoh's humiliation here, making the Nile stink, it should, it should lead to Pharaoh's submission to Yahweh. Because that's what, that's what the Lord does sometimes. Sometimes the Lord humiliates us to bring us to repentance. You ever been in a situation like that? You were riding on your high horse, and man, the Lord just knocked you right off of it. You, you were walking so confidently, so pridefully, nothing could take you down, and then you just got knocked embarrassingly off your high horse. Man, I, amen, I can say it. Humiliating. And sometimes we get knocked off our high horse by the Lord to show us that He is the Lord. And we are not. But how will you respond when the Lord does bring you low? Will you respond like Pharaoh when you're, you're humiliated and you're embarrassed? Will you respond by cementing yourself deeper in? Being more angry against God. Hating God. Despising God for what He does. Or... Will your humiliation bring you to repentance? Sometimes we get so mad. At, How could you do this to me, God? How could you do this to me? Bring me down. Take this away from me. Maybe it's to show you that he is Lord and you are not. 
So, unlike Pharaoh, God's reputation cannot be tarnished. It cannot be touched. It cannot be stained. Smear campaigns don't work on God. Political mudslinging doesn't work on God. That's why, you know, I, I don't worry about what atheists or what the media or books, whatever, say about God. His character cannot be smeared. And his character will be upheld and proven true and validated before all the eyes of creation. So write whatever you want. Say whatever you say. Despise. Insult. But one day, God will be proven true. He will be validated. It doesn't work on him. And lastly is this. This plague shows us that God is just in his recompense. The Nile was the source of life for Pharaoh and for the Egyptians. But it wasn't for Israel, was it? If you remember, early on in Exodus chapter 1, the Nile was actually the instrument of death for Israel. Is that Pharaoh utilized the waters to kill Israelites. Pharaoh used it to extinguish them. And now it's turning red as an indictment on Pharaoh and a reminder of what has been perpetrated against Israel. It's kind of like the writing on the wall. It's turning red. It's turning to blood as a reminder to Pharaoh, this is what you did against me and my people. Pharaoh's instrument of injustice is now God's instrument of justice. It's God's ironic and perfect recompense for Pharaoh's evil. And man, we're learning this again. Is God heavy-handed here turning the Nile into blood? Is this just recompense for what Pharaoh has done? And I think we can all say yes. God is just, and his justice is never unfair. It's never unequal. It's never heavy-handed. He is just and fair in his recompense on his enemies. And I, I think this should prepare us for what we hear about hell in the Bible as well. Eternity in hell. It is hard. And it should never bring us joy and peace. But it is not unjust or unfair or heavy-handed. It is the just recompense for rejection and rebellion against a holy God. God is not heavy-handed, but He is just in His recompense. So when you think that this is a little over the top, God, this is a little too much, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right, this, doesn't feel, uh, this feels a little bit unjust, you've, went over, you've, went, you've stepped over the line, God, everything that God does, even in His punishment of sin, is just. And is just recompense for his sin. And so God gives Pharaoh a taste of his righteous and perfect heavy hand. But how will Pharaoh respond to this? The Nile turning into blood? Well, God's righteous heavy hand is met by Pharaoh's unrighteous heavy heart. This is point number two. Pharaoh's heavy heart. Look at how Pharaoh responds in verses 22 through 25. Not the way that you would expect, or maybe you do expect. He's further cemented himself in unbelief. And, and 
this might be a terrible illustration for you, but has anybody ever, you kicked a boulder real hard? Maybe you were hiking or something like that, and you thought you were just like, you're just going to kick it and like move it out of the way, or you stubbed your toe on something that you thought was just a, a movable object in some sense. You know, it moved you, but it, you did not move it, right? And you, and you, you say all those words that, you know, that we won't mention, and you kick that boulder, you get mad. But this is like the heart of Pharaoh, right? Like that immovable boulder that you kick and just doesn't do anything to you. That Pharaoh's heart is like a, it's like a growing boulder that embeds itself deeper into the soil the longer it resists and goes unmoved. So if you want to think of Pharaoh's heart in this sense, he sees these signs and wonders and he digs himself deeper like a boulder growing larger and digging itself deeper and bedding itself into the soil where it gets to the point of being immovable. And this is Pharaoh's condition right here. It starts off in verse 14 that his heart is hardened. And this ends with, again, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It remained hard. And that this hardness of heart is demonstrated in Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go, and his being unwavering in seeing what has just happened to the Nile, his prized possession. His actions are an indicator of his spiritual disposition. The spiritual condition of his heart is shown in what he does. And this is, this is very similar to Jesus' words in the book of Matthew. Is that, you know, they're all worried about, hey, what defiles us? Is it what we eat? Is that what defiles us? And Jesus says, no. No. This is what he says, Matthew 15. Are you still dull? Jesus asked him, do you not see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Do you see where these things are all coming out of? These actions, these ways of being, they come from something deeply rooted in a person's heart. And so what we're seeing from Pharaoh in his actions, his refusal, his just disregarding of what he has just seen, is, is the indicators of his spiritual condition. And it goes even further to say just how, just how deep he cemented himself in this. Look at what he does in verse 23. His heart has remained hard, but then it says this, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. He sees it, okay, turns around, goes into his house, and he sleeps like a baby that night. Sleeps like a baby. Has no concern over what just happened. And all the while, the Egyptians are suffering for water. His resistance and hard-heartedness has effects on them. We've already seen it a couple times here. Verse 18, they grow weary from drinking the water. Verse 21, the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And then it's just finally capstone in this, verse 24. The Egyptians 
dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. They are searching for something to quench their thirst. And man, this just reminds you of these dictators in third world countries, doesn't it? They live in palaces. They eat the finest foods. They drink the nicest drinks. They drive the nicest cars. While all their people live in slums. And they consider them nothing. Because their pride and their arrogance says, who cares? I'm taken care of. But it's Pharaoh's disobedience, his resistance. It's causing these effects on his people. Resistance and sin, disobedience, hardness of heart. Sometimes they make us blind to the plight of others. Do you realize that? That sometimes our sin, when we get so engulfed by me, by me, by my pride, by what I want, by what I want to have, by what I want to get, it makes us blind to the plight of others and their suffering sometimes. It's all about me and who cares about who else suffers. This is what sin and disobedience and resistance to God does to us. Sometimes it makes us blind to these things and sometimes it makes us people who contribute to suffering. And we think our sin is just very insignificant, right? We downplay it. It's no big deal. Well, it's a big deal on many different levels. Your sin and disobedience, our sin, disobedience, resistance to God, it is against a holy God. And not only that, our sin and disobedience, it affects us sometimes. It hurts us. It makes our lives worse. And sometimes our sin and disobedience affects others. If you, if me, we get to be deceived by sin to say, it's okay it doesn't affect anybody else. It only will affect me. You are naive. We are naive. Sin is not that small and insignificant. Like Pharaoh here, his sin, his pride, and his arrogance has got him to the point where he sees the plight of his people and he doesn't even care. This is what sin and disobedience can do to you. And this sin is very serious because like I said, again, this is against God. And I think that's emphasized here at the last verse. It says this, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. When's the last time in the Bible you heard seven full days? Creation. That this, these signs, these wonders, they're mirroring creation, saying, the God of the Exodus who is bringing these plagues is the God of Genesis 1. This is who you're messing with, Pharaoh. This is who you're resisting. This is who you're rebelling against, the Creator, God. And church family, this morning, I'm fearful for us that we would read these plagues, that we would read the Nile turning into blood and say, yeah, that's something that God did in the past. That's something that, that he did to th those people. And, 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 and that's a warning for them and things like this. The Nile turning into blood is a warning for us. It's a warning for us. Because what God has done in the past is going to look very similar to what he's going to do in the future. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the, 
the last book of the Bible, Revelation 16. I know many of your favorite books, right? Revelation 16. But if we get out of here and leave and say, that was a great story about what happened a long time ago to the Egyptians, then we are in very severe danger of not saying, this is to be a warning to us. Revelation 16. This is about the seven bowls of God's wrath that he will pour out on the unjust and the ungodly in the final days. It says this in verses 3 and 4. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the, what? Blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Anybody ever heard that before? The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. Hmm, that's uncanny, right? And they became blood. What God did in Exodus 7, 14 through 25, is not just meant to warn the Israelites, not just meant to warn Pharaoh, not just meant to warn Egyptians, but to warn us that what God did in the past will look very similar to what he will do in the future. It's a warning, church family. This is not a God to resist. This is not a God to disobey. This is not a God to be unsubmissive to. It's very serious of what he does in the past and what he will do in the future. Obey him. Do not resist him like Pharaoh. This God is a just God who has brought just recompense in the past and will bring in the future. And so I just plead with you, don't be like Pharaoh. Submit. Be obedient. Give in to his will and his ways. Or you will suffer a judgment that will be like Egypt and Pharaoh, but much, much worse when Christ returns. But I don't want to leave you without any hope this morning. The God of the plagues is also the God of patience. The God of the plagues is also the God of patience. He is the one who is completely and perfectly just and patient with resistant, rebellious sinners like Pharaoh right here. Over and over again, showing him patience upon patience upon patience. He is patient. God is patient with us in Christ Jesus to rebellious, resistant sinners. Listen to what Nehemiah 9, 17 says about reflecting on these things. It says this, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Though we give God so many reasons to forsake us, though we give God so many reasons to show us just recompense right here and right now, God, who is the God of the plagues, is also the God of perfect patience with you and with me. And if we trust in Christ, repent of our sin, He bears the wrath of God in our place. He takes our sin and our just recompense on himself. He shows that he is God by miraculously raising from the dead. This morning, church family, the God of the plagues is also the God of patience and is ready and willing to show you patience in Christ Jesus. Will you submit? Will you return to the Lord? Christian, if you're in here, I would just say this. Does your look, life look more like pride and resistance to God and His will? 
for humility and submission. Unbeliever in here this morning, I'm glad that you're here. I'm so thankful that you joined us this morning. But I want you to hear this. Apart from Christ, you are now in resistance and and rebellion against God. But this morning, you don't have to leave as a rebel. You can leave as a child if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. He will receive you and embrace you and give you grace and forgiveness and love and mercy now because the God of the praise is also the God of patience. An unbeliever. On judgment day, no one can use me excuse. No one warned me. No one warned me. Because again, don't say, I didn't warn you. God, we love you. We thank you that you are a God of just recompense, but also a God of mercy and grace. You show your love for wicked sinners when we are so undeserving of it, God. And I pray this morning that any of us in here who are in Christ, that we would not be unsubmissive and resistant to what you want, God, but obedient and love. And that, God, if any in here are outside of Christ, that they would see that they need Christ to reconcile them to you. God, be with us as we worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to invite the worship team back up this morning. If this morning you're here and you are, you find yourself in a place where you are apart from God, resistant to God, and a rebel, this morning, myself, Dr. David, Jim, we would love to talk with you about how you can receive grace and forgiveness and life in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer here this morning and you're wrestling, man, you might be wrestling with resistance right now. You might be struggling with, I am struggling to obey God in this area. We want to walk with you. That God has ordained the church to journey with you to that end. And so come and speak with us. We would love to speak with you about how we can serve you, minister to you, and love you as you journey through this God-ordained process as a means of sanctification and growth in Christ Jesus.